previously on All Relative, defining Diego. So she didn't get much money from the people who took Diego. And Dan and I had to pay a lot of money in order to do the adoption. What does she think about that? I don't know. I feel like, honestly, he's a changed dude. From what to what? From some hard-ass dude who fought in a war and stuff to just someone who is trying to survive. The Truth Commission found that 5,000 children were forcibly disappeared during the war. On all my trips back to Santiago Atitlan, I'd never stopped before at the memorial on the edge of town. Okay, right now we are at uh, Parque de la Paz, and um, yeah, it's a kind of eerie place. It's very gray. I mean, uh, dark things happened here, so I'm not surprised, but um, going there, paying my respects, it was important to me. Because the men who died here were casualties of Guatemala's 36-year civil war. There's small steps that lead up to kind of three pillars and crosses. And I believe the, the memorials and the names are laid out really not how you think of a cemetery. And I think that's because they are in the exact place that the bodies were. The Guatemalan Civil War claimed hundreds of thousands of lives, including many Sutujil Maya. That's what I am. Families were ripped apart, children were left without parents, and mothers without options. In many ways, the war is what led to me being taken all the way from Santiago Atitlan to St. Paul, Minnesota. I think I will always be on this journey. It's not the kind of trip that has a clear beginning or end. In Minnesota, people assume I speak Spanish. In Guatemala, with my adoptive family, people assume I'm a tour guide. No one really guesses right. Now that I'm an adult, I'm learning how to represent myself. To me, that means talking about where I come from. And where I come from is a beautiful place. And people that have survived centuries of oppression. From Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Defining Atiko. Episode 9, What Brought Me Here? The people I come from, the Sutujil Maya people, have been living in the area we now call Guatemala for thousands of years. The ancient Maya were one of the great civilizations like the Romans. The Mayans knew how to tell time, purify water, and build cities. And they also gave us hot chocolate. But things changed for the Maya people when the Spanish came. In the 16th century, the colonists brought disease and threatened a way of life. There were these religious arguments about whether the Maya had souls, whether they're human or not. And there were these big debates in the Vatican and in Spain about whether they uh, deserved rights because they were humans and they had souls like, like white people. That's Professor Ale Colon. 
She's a Guatemalan anthropologist who mostly works in indigenous communities. She said that the Spanish tried to convert the Maya to Catholicism, and they also forced European views of property. Laws were passed that took all that land away from communities under the guise that they were the rightful owners because they didn't have formal titles, like European-style land titles. The Spanish seemed to be obsessed with keeping the Maya under their control. So there's this fantasy, too, that the moment we, we give rights to the Maya, they'll take them and they'll revolt and then they'll massacre us. Guatemala declared its independence from Spain in 1821. But for indigenous people, nothing changed. The descendants of the Spanish owned most of the land and just about everything else. They made the rules, including laws like the ones in the U.S. after the American Civil War. Laws that affected both formerly enslaved people and their descendants. Ale said that in Guatemala, these kind of laws kept indigenous people enslaved too. If you couldn't prove you were employed, you had to work for free or taken prisoner to build roads or to build and harvest coffee. As much as they could, indigenous people kept to themselves, eating the corn, beans, and squash that had always sustained them, and making their own clothing and pottery, harvesting wood from the mountains and fish from the streams in the sea. Some did seasonal work, without pay, picking cotton or sugarcane. But that was before bananas took over. Because in a lot of ways, bananas made Guatemala what it is today. They even launched a civil war. After the break, more bananas. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Look, I love bananas, and I used to eat them all the time without thinking about where they came from. But if you go take a look, you'll see your bananas might be from the same place as me. Sometimes it even says Guatemala on their little stickers. Officers in trim white uniforms pick up their golden cargoes from a place we call Banana Land. You can't study the history of Guatemala without bananas. In the 20th century, the land of the Maya became a bunch of banana republics. The writer O. Henry came up with that term to describe countries with governments that catered to big private companies. Companies like United Fruit. At the turn of the century, United Fruit sold bananas in the United States. It had a near monopoly. Now, United Fruit was a U.S. company. These days, you might know it as Chiquita. But it got all its bananas from other places. Panama, Honduras, Guatemala. Companies like United Fruit controlled everything. 
from the trees to the governments. They built railroads and operated communication systems. They made sure laws were friendly to its exports. And that worked for United Fruit. For a long time, they usually got their way. But big change was brewing. And in the 1950s, Guatemalans elected a president who wanted to give land back to poor farmers, many of whom were indigenous. By the way, this was all right in the middle of the Cold War, when the Soviet Union and the U.S. were competing to run the world. United Fruit and the Eisenhower administration decided giving land back to farmers would be bad for U.S. foreign interests. And thanks to the Cold War and how much communism scared the West, they could say that the new Guatemalan president was part of the communist agenda. So they sponsored a coup that overthrew the democratically elected government of Guatemala. For United Fruit, it's business as usual as all company land seized by the communists is returned. But it wasn't business as usual. Guatemalans had seen a glimpse of what change could look like. Some people started to organize, many with the blessing of the Catholic Church. Others began fighting against the U.S.-backed military dictatorship. The dictatorship saw organizing as a threat, and it cracked down hard, especially in Mayan villages. The crackdown led to a 36-year civil war. The war claimed countless lives. Thousands of families were displaced, including many children. The Civil War ended in 1996, just two years before I was born, and it left scars on my village and the people closest to me. Stay with us. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. From 1960 onwards, there were several factions vying for power in Guatemala. But it boiled down to the military dictatorship and the guerrilla groups that opposed it. Many were forced to take sides, while others just wanted to protect their families. By the 80s, the violence was especially brutal in the mountain villages near Santiago Atitlan. The government was cracking down, mostly on indigenous people, like they say in this 1982 report. In recent years, Guatemala has witnessed scores of massacres. Its army has been accused of waging terror against the Indian people in order to prevent them from joining the guerrillas. In Santiago Atitlan, the memories are still fresh. Everyone I know was affected. Including me. What do you call this? What do you call this? It's corn. That's me when I was three years old, running my hands through a pail of corn kernels. We were at Dolores' parents' house. Dolores is our friend and translator from Santiago Atitlan, and she's been helping us pretty much my whole life. He's born here, and we can see, we think he's, he's our, our little nephew, and my mother, she thinks it's one of her grandson, because we have the same blood. I mean, that's his home here. Nobody can change nobody. The root is here. When you see him playing, he's just one of our family playing here. I was running around with a toy truck in their courtyard. Dolores' mother, Mercedes, was kneeling on a mat weaving cloth on a backstrap loom. 
Dolores' father, his name is Diego, like me, was braiding threads to make a bracelet. Dolores said that's how they survived the Civil War, staying in, making their own things, and keeping their heads down. Diego was a young man then, and he was lucky to survive the Civil War. By the time the war ended, 200,000 people were dead. Most of the known victims were Maya. In the Americas, it was the 20th century's bloodiest conflict. After the Civil War, Guatemala's own investigation called it genocide. But it wasn't just on Guatemala. The United States backed the dictators who committed these atrocities. Last time I was in Guatemala, I visited a Parque de Paz with Dolores and my producer Mia. We arrived in the afternoon, a warm and sunny day. We were there to meet Dolores' friend. Andrea Mendoza looked like she was about Dolores' age, in her 60s maybe. She wore a purple wapil with embroidered birds and leaves and a long patterned skirt. When we walked up, Andrea was standing with her arms crossed over a stone marked with a plaque. Oh my goodness, okay. This is the sun here where the massacre happened in 1990, December 2nd. This is uh, the shrine. And when the army, they opened up the fire, they laid here. 13 people died here. Andrea motioned to the stone in front of her. Her son, just 13 years old, was killed on this very spot. And that's Pedro Cristal Mendoza. He was born on the 2nd of November, 1977, and died the 2nd of December, 1990. Before Pedro's death, he and his family lived in Santiago Atitlan. It was a dangerous existence back then. The army, uh, they just arrived here in 1980, and they started to control men when they go up to the mountain and checking all the bags where they're taking all of this food. And they accuse the people from Santiago Atitlan, they're, they're guerrilla people. As Andrea remembers it, the army ran the village for the next 10 years. Locals suspected soldiers assassinated a U.S.-born Catholic priest, but it was never solved. The army killed and kidnapped hundreds of villagers, accusing them of supporting the guerrillas. On December 2nd, 1990, tensions boiled over. A couple of soldiers had been drinking and harassing people in town. But instead of taking this kind of treatment, the townspeople rallied. For an hour, church bells rang and people came together in the main square. Led by the mayor, carrying white flags, they marched to the army base. But when they got there, soldiers opened fire. They killed 13 unarmed civilians. Some reports say 14, mostly young men. Andrea's son was one of them. He was a good student. He likes to do his homework. He wanted to be a priest. Andrea visits Pedro's headstone every week. She's been doing that for more than 30 years. But I don't know what's going to happen when I die someday. He thinks about me, and I think about him. I bring him flowers and candles, and I come to the Mass. The war didn't officially end for another six years, in 1996. But something shifted in Guatemala after that massacre in Santiago Atitlan. 
Dozens of reporters came to the funerals. Congress called for an investigation. The Catholic Church called for compensation for the families. But most importantly, the army was kicked out of Santiago de Tietlán, and they've never been allowed back in. Because Dolores speaks English, she works as a cultural guide in Santiago de Tietlán, sharing Sutujil traditions of weaving and crafts with tourists. But she insists the Mayan culture is so much more than that. But it's very important to know the history about the Mayan people and how much the Mayan people suffered about this war. Dolores' dad, Diego, passed away in 2021. He's the one who was making friendship bracelets and keeping his head down during the Civil War. I wish now I could have asked him more about his experience. But when I met him, I was only three. There were things he wanted me to know, so he told them to my mom, Lori. My father think if this child, you give him good education and he gets to see the world, and then I think it's, it'll be good for him. And someday probably you can live here with the people. Probably he can learn the language to, to heal too. Well, I'm all grown up now. Learning about my heritage helps me appreciate everything I have here in St. Paul, and also my very deep connection to Guatemala. I want to say Matioche. That means thank you, Tsutuhil. Dolores taught me that. So, Matioche to her and to everyone, especially in Santiago Atitlan, who shared their stories with me. And, you know, a lot of other Guatemalan adoptees have a story to tell. You'll be hearing about that next. Next time on All Relative, Defining Atiko. He has a sixth finger on each hand, which is not really like a 100% finger because it has no bones. Like, why don't I look like everyone? And like, I even contemplated like dyeing my hair to look like everyone around me. I don't know how it would feel if I find out she hasn't passed away. I think for me, a question of um, my mental health and, and being at peace with my life. All Relative, Defining Diego is a production of Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment. It's hosted by me, Diego Shikai Luke. This episode was written and produced by Kyra Asabe Bansu. Senior producer is Mia Warren. Associate producer is India Witkin. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs, Jude Kampfner, and Tom Koenig. Lizzie Jacobs and Lori Stern were our editors on this episode. Production management help from Ike Igbatola and Lily Hambly. This episode was engineered by Sam Baer, our theme song was composed by Gautam Shrikashan. Fact-checking by Natsumi Ajisaka. Translation by Dolores Ratsan. Our adoptee consultant is Eric Mon. And special thanks to my dad, Dan Luke. If you love the show, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 